You're listening to P.F.'s Tape Recorder. This is the biggest name in comedy, Kostaki Economopoulos. Hello there, I'm P.F. This is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's Matt Belknap from Never Not Funny. Um, open mics are not fun, obviously, for anybody, but the people <laughs> who endure them, I think, do that because they need it. And I had zero burning desire to do it. Like, I was just doing it sort of as an intellectual exercise. When I got laughs, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't care. And when I didn't get laughs, I also didn't care. Uh, <laughs> it didn't yeah. matter one way or the other. Those of you who listen to the show with any regularity know we've talked to Jimmy Pardo many, many times. We've never talked to Matt. And Matt, of course, is the co-creator and producer of the Never Not Funny podcast, the popular and award-winning podcast. And the only time I've ever heard Matt's backstory is when he was a guest on the Comedy Film Nerds with uh, Chris Mancini and Graham Elwood. And we got to hear a little bit of about you know how he grew up and how he's interested in, in films and things like that. But uh, I don't think many of you really know Matt's backstory and uh, how he fits into the whole Jimmy Pardo universe and all that. I mean, maybe bits and pieces from having listened to their show. But uh, it was good having him on. Uh, good news for you folks. No dumb bit this week. The interview with Matt ran a little long, so I'm going to skip the dumb bit this week. I will tell you up front, though, I was going to try to mention something at least off the mic and then maybe kind of inform you guys after. Uh, many of you know are probably fans of both uh, Never Not Funny and this show and Pat Francis's Rock Solid. And as you know, there's been kind of a little bit of... um. I don't know, I guess of a disagreement between uh, those folks. And uh, I kind of wanted to bring it up, but then I decided, nah, and plus the, the interview ran long anyway. But um, boy, this it's rough because, as many of you know, my favorite, well, my two favorite bands are the Beach Boys and Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark. And if you know anything about the new wave music, you know that uh, for a while, Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark, the two main guys in the band split in uh, 1990 and did not want to work together and did not get along for a while. And then they quickly became friends again. But um, this is kind of the same way I feel about Never Not Funny. You know, I know Jimmy and I know Pat and I, you know, uh, I feel badly about the situation, as probably a lot of fans do, and I hope they work things out. If you don't know, basically what happened was uh, they do this charity every year. It's the Podcast-a-thon at Benefit Smile Train, and it was Pat's idea, I believe, to you know do this Podcast-a-thon a long, long time ago and to Benefit Smile Train. And I guess what happened at two years ago is they wanted to change the format and make Podcast-a-thon just more like a long version of Never Not Funny, and when Pat's on the show, it kind of changes the dynamic of the whole show. And they didn't think that was really what listeners wanted and didn't think that was going to keep people compelled to listen for hours and hours, you know, and donate lots of money. And they told Pat that and it didn't go very well. And uh, so as of now, I don't think things have been patched up. I didn't want to bring anything up during the interview. But in just case you're wondering about that, uh, that's why I did not bring that up. And I'm with the rest of y'all. I hope they can, you know, work things out. In the meantime, great talk with Maddie. I've spoken to Matt uh, once at length about a business idea of getting our show onto their network, but now uh, their network is just too big for uh, me, even though this, sh- this show is doing very well. Um, and other than that, I really haven't talked to him except for a couple of email exchanges, you know, about some of the people that are on his record label. We talk about his record label too. So in the meantime, uh, no dumb bit. Let's go right to the interview with Matt Belknap. Uh, Matt, it's PF. Hey, how's it going? Good. Uh, is it still a good time to talk? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry about yesterday. That oh, was that's, uh, that's all fine. my fault. I figured I really some, forgot about it. Figure some some important uh, AST or uh, never not funny business must have come up. So uh. <laughs> I wish I could say that were true, but no, it's just uh, I just completely forgot. <laughs> I didn't put it in my calendar, which uh, I usually do. I've gotten better about it, but no. Right. Uh, that one time slipped through there. No, anyway, no worries. As uh, how, are, how are you doing today? Good, good. Well, no worries, as our Australian friends say. Yeah, I thought this would be a good chance to uh, to speak with you officially, uh, both for my podcast and for uh, you know uh, readers in Minneapolis who are Jimmy Pardo slash Never Not Funny fans. Because the only other interview interview I've ever heard you do really, it wasn't really an interview, is when you were on Comedy Film Nerds about four or five years ago. And um, yeah, so yeah, I don't. I mean, I think over the years, people kind of know. Your backstory, just from little bits and pieces on Never Not Funny, but uh, I thought it'd be fun to get to know uh, the entrepreneur, the head honcho, Matt Belknap, uh, especially with the, with the event cool. coming up in Minneapolis. Yeah, so um, so so from the beginning, I guess you're uh, from upstate New York, right, or Massachusetts, or right near the border of Massachusetts yeah, and New York. Right, yeah, right on the border. I I, I lived in New York. Went to school uh, uh, across the state line in Massachusetts, and then my nice. mom, uh, my parents split up. My mom moved to Massachusetts, so I was basically going back and forth all the time. <laughs> oh, okay, so growing up, what was your experience with comedy? Were you like a big Saturday Night Live fan, a stand-up fan, both? Uh, how did that develop? Yeah, yeah, both. I, I, my parents had some. Uh, well, now it sounds weird, but at the time it didn't seem weird at all. My, my parents had some Bill Cosby album and uh, maybe a Woody Allen album. I'm trying to think, uh, but that, that I remember listening to those a lot as a kid and really loving Bill Cosby. And um, I guess that was right around when his, the Cosby show started too. So it was sort of like the, the right age. Um, you know, like I was the right age to watch that show. It's kind of a family sitcom, and then the the material was also sort of very similar to the sensibility of the show. So I got really into that. Um, I didn't. Let's see. I probably started watching SNL in '85. I remember it was like the weird season. Yeah. yeah. After, like, after Eddie Murphy and all those guys left, it Billy Crystal and. And it was like, I think Lawrence first year back and I had the weirdest cast where it was like Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall were on it for some reason. And uh, it was, uh, I think it was John Lovitz's first season and maybe Dennis Miller's first season. Uh, And yeah, I would, I would, we had a a Betamax um, VCR and I would, I would tape it every Saturday because I couldn't stay up that late and, and then watch it on Sunday morning and fast forward to the commercials and stuff. So. Uh, yeah, that was, that was huge. But I think, you know, I also just liked joke books and like, uh, comic strips, like anything that was trying to be funny. I loved, I loved the far side, you know, like oh, yeah. just anything I could get my hands on that was, that was funny. Um, I became obsessed with, like I was obsessed with Garfield. Uh, when I was little, <laughs> I got all the, they would put out those anthologies of Garfield strips and I would buy them yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. I was a big um, BC man myself. Sorry, I, you remember, I, I was a big BC man myself. I remember those, the prehistoric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had all those books. Yep. I don't know yeah. why BC, that and the Lockhorns for some reason. I think I got them from a cousin 
And then from there, I I got a couple of them, and then from there, I just kept buying them because I thought oh, these are pretty funny. I'll I'll just keep reading these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't know what made me gravitate to Garfield, other than it was sort of a cultural phenomenon. So he was everywhere, and was, I, yeah. I lived in a rural area. So it, it maybe was just I wasn't being exposed to like uh, I was oh, the stuff that reached me was probably had already become very mainstream and huge I, I also remember liking bloom county a lot like i, I oh collected yeah yeah those books. <laughs> yeah my brother was big on uh on bloom county and what was the uh, the associated comic strip with that i can't remember um there was after that ended yeah he launched it, another one that was more focused on opus um, right, right. okay yeah yeah called? yeah i forget yeah okay. i mean it was clear that opus was kind of like the the popular the, Opus and Bill the Cat were like the really right. breakout characters from yeah. Bloom County. And so I think, yeah, oh man, I can't remember what that other one was called. That's going to drive me crazy. But yeah, it was, uh, I love all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, and then, you know, outside of that, luckily I had parents who were very into the arts. And even though we lived in, on a farm, they had, Grown up, you know, near New York City and Chicago, and and were really into going to theater, going to live stuff, and and so when I showed an interesting comedy, my dad started taking me to see comedy when it would come to like there would be shows in Albany, um, or sometimes in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Uh, so I got to see like as I grew up, I got to see George Carlin and uh, Stephen Wright, and oh, wow. Um, Jerry Seinfeld and just like a crazy list of, of great comics would come through just because it was the eighties and it was like, <laughs> that was yeah. their job was to, to <laughs> tour all the time. And, uh, so I was very lucky. I got to see like just incredible, uh, legendary stand-up comics at a young age. And, and it was, it made a huge impression on me. Wow. You got to see the giants, uh, back in the day. Yeah. Well, well, the first, yeah, the first show I ever went to, we actually, it was weird. We were just talking about the sun, never not funny, um, on the episode that comes out, uh, tomorrow. But, uh, the first comedy show I ever saw, I think I was 10 years old. My parents took me to see Robin Williams in this like arena. It was like a huge venue. And, uh, I think they thought it was like, more, you know, Mork from Mork and Mindy's doing <laughs> comedy. And like they didn't realize that he was very R-rated and crazy. <laughs> like, not, a, not really a kid's show. Uh, but it blew my mind. Like, I, it was like the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. Cause he was just so, well, yeah, as you've seen probably, he, he was so like fast and manic and crazy. And just, he would, he had this thing where he would just have like the local DJs who were hosting the, the show, like would bring out a box of stuff that they had bought from a toy store. And he just would start pulling things out of the box and riffing on them, which I just couldn't believe was possible. I didn't understand. Like, I was like, uh, I didn't even know if as a kid, if I was like savvy enough to question whether it was really like stuff he had never seen before or not. Although knowing what I know now, I'm sure it was because I'm sure what he was doing wasn't that clever, but yeah, to yeah. a 10 year old, it seemed like the most mind blowing, amazing improv. Like, I didn't even know what improv was, but it was like, how is this happening? How is he making making me laugh, like, so hard that my mouth hurts just <laughs> from making stuff up uh, based on what was... And then, you know, like, the, the most... The thing that really stuck in my mind is he took a woman... A, there was a woman in the front row who had a camera, and he took her camera 
and stuck it down his pants and took a picture. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's nothing will ever be funnier. That's the funniest <laughs> thing that can possibly happen in the world uh, to my 10 year old brain. So yeah, it was, that, again, that was, that had a big impact on my life. And I guess you also were interested in film though, because before you became a, uh, a, a comedy entrepreneur, a, a mogul impresario, as it were, <laughs> um, you worked in the film <laughs> business and you kind of studied that at, at college, right? Yeah, yeah. I went I went to Emerson College for, uh, to study film, and actually, when I was in high school, uh, I was very lucky. Got to, I went to a school, like a, a private school that had film classes. Um, so I, I I was doing I, I I basically like when I was around fifteen or sixteen is when I decided I wanna I wanted to make movies. Uh, like I that was like the first time I sort of realized, oh, I don't have to. Like the like the job I have as an adult doesn't have to be some boring thing that uh, that sort of that, that not even it's not like my parents were putting pressure on me but my my dad had gone to law school and um, my mom uh, worked in like photo preservation and so they had like these sort of, you know job jobs and and like I although photo preservation kind of weird and interesting but I still saw that as like that's a boring thing adults do but like something clicked in my head when I saw do the right thing, um, when I was 15 or 16 or whatever. And, uh, and I was like, Oh wait, movies, like somebody's making the movie. It's not just like, if they're not, they don't just show up in the theater. Like that's a job. Like there's people whose job it is to make these. And so I was like, that's what I want to do. And and I went to the high school that had film classes and I got to make like school super eight movies and, write scripts and and so i was like i just threw everything into that because i was like this is what i love this is what i want to do and i was a very like serious kid like even though i loved comedy when i by the time i got to high school i was like a very angsty teenager who like i took myself way too seriously and so it like i I think that was sort of my outlet for like wanting to be creative but feeling like i didn't i didn't think again like even though i figured out that film was a career I didn't ever think I could be a, a work in comedy because I just was like those people are uh, aliens from another planet and somehow they got like they have this special thing inside them that lets them do what they do and I will never have that so I don't know what I, I just, there's no reason to even think about that being a job like I'll, huh. I'll just do this and so yeah I spent all of high school and all of college working on, you know, trying to learn how to make movies and how to write screenplays. And, and my, I read this book, uh, when I was 16 that, uh, Spike Lee wrote a book, uh, after he made his first movie, she's got to have it. He wrote a book about like, basically it was just like, here's how, you, here's how to make a movie. And in the book, he said, you know, if you want to make movies, you should learn how to write because that's the most important thing. And you can do it by yourself without spending any money. And if you get good at that, then you can work your way into the other aspects of, of filmmaking. And so I just like, okay, I'll be a screenwriter and I'll, I'll learn how to write. And, and then hopefully someday I'll get to direct movies and do all that other stuff. Too. So yeah, that was, that was all I was doing and all I cared about for from the age of 16 to 20, whatever, like into my 20s. So yeah. And after you graduated, you had right to Los Angeles. Uh, is it, was that correct? Yeah. Or, yeah okay. So what happens when you show up in Los Angeles? I mean, do you have notions of being a screenwriter still? And I know you wound up reading scripts, but uh, so what happens when you show up in L.A.? 
Yeah, I, I, I had an internship that I got set up. It was like my last eight credits of college were um, doing this internship at the Samuel Goldwyn Company, which is like an independent um, or was an independent production company. Uh, and out of the internship, I got this job reading scripts, which um, basically is something you can do from home which I liked because I was like, okay, this will give me the flexibility to work on my own stuff and, and sort of be my own boss a little bit. And, uh, in actuality, I mean, it did, that was all true, but it also kind of just cut me off from, uh, any social, uh, <laughs> social situation that might've happened if I'd oh, been yeah, in an yeah. office or working on a movie set or something. Like I cut myself off from a huge swath of experiences just because I was, I, frankly, I was just like intimidated by, the industry and by the city of Los Angeles, I'd, I'd only lived in, I lived in Boston for three years, but other than that, I had never lived in the city and, and being in Boston when you're in college is basically just like being in any other large college campus. It's not yeah. very, it's not like being dropped into this huge sprawling city where you, I knew like I had a few friends who moved out at the same time as me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Uh, we all moved out at the same time. But other than that, I just kind of was like, scared of like, uh, you know, I don't know. I didn't want to, I, I really felt like I wasn't ready to like, I felt like I needed to learn more and I needed to get better at writing, but I, I thought I was scared to like, you know, get my, I, I like I probably should have just jumped into the deep end of it. But instead I was just like, let me just lay low and read scripts and make money reading scripts and, and, you know, basically pay my bills that way. And I'll learn a lot about scripts from reading them and covering them and writing coverage on them. And then when I'm ready, I'll write something great. That'll be my ticket. But the truth is the writing itself doesn't matter as much as the connections that you make when you're trying to do that job. And I was completely neglecting the networking side of it and just focusing on the writing side of it. So it was a very... It, I spent years doing that with no progress because, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I knew people. I, I, I eventually moved over to reading Scripture Imagine Entertainment, which is um, Ron Howard's company. And so I got to know people at Imagine, and they were very nice, and eventually they were willing to read my script and stuff. But they're, like, this huge company that, like, they don't, they don't gamble on undiscovered talent. They, like, basically... They were at that point. They were, you know, working with Judd Apatow and things like that. Like they were working with like the top level screenwriters on projects that were going to become big, you know, star driven movies. And so uh, it was not the right, right place for me to break in. And so they would give me feedback and stuff, but it wasn't really helpful um, to like getting my break. And so yeah, and so I did that for mm, ten or twelve years. And, uh, no, no, I guess it was 12. Yeah, 12. But by the end of it, I really maybe halfway through that is when I started my message board and got sort of, uh, found a back door into the comedy scene that, uh, sort of gave me the sort of social networking. And I mean, I don't even want to call it networking, but it gave me a social life that I didn't have prior to that, that sort of led to a lot of other things that I'm doing now. Interesting. Well, back when you're reading scripts, just for a second, um, what were you doing exactly deciding, you know, this is good, this is rubbish, uh, or what kind of, what level of responsibility did you have in reading the script for the studio? It, initially, it was just submissions would, would get 
you know, I would I would be the first line of defense on all the scripts that were being submitted to the production company. And so most of it was crap. And my job was to just summarize the plot and then write one page of comments about why this is not a good, why, you know, why this isn't right for the company. Yeah. And then the, the executive who that script was submitted to could then take that and use that to tell the agent, no, we're, we're passing on this and here's why without actually having to read the script themselves. Or maybe they would read a little bit of it and then if it was bad, they would just fall back on like whatever I'd written so they could pretend that they had read it. But okay. uh, eventually I, I was there so long that I, I ended up working on scripts that were in development, which, um, which means every draft, you know, they would hire a writer. Sometimes I, sometimes I would read it. This was pretty rare, but sometimes I would read a script that they would then buy. And then once they buy something, they put it into development, which means they either pay that writer to write rewrites or hire new writers to do rewrites on it. And then my job was to, track the changes from draft to draft and give notes on the changes and say like, is this getting better? Is this getting worse? But still summarizing the plot. Okay. Also just focusing on like what's going to be, you know, this was, this was a good change. This was not, this still needs work over here. And then again, the executive, that would just go into a big bucket of comments that, or notes that everybody at the company would be giving. So like the executive on the project would have their own notes and then other junior executives would be throwing their notes in and everybody would be, constantly saying like here's what needs to happen so doing that actually it was it was kind of cool like i actually enjoyed that part i got to work on some good movies like a beautiful mind and um eight mile and um da vinci code um so yeah like but basically between 2000 and 2008 uh or something like that a lot of the stuff that imagine produced i probably read it at some point and, and threw some notes into the pile um, like most of Ron's stuff, um, Ron Howard's stuff yeah, that he yeah. directed, like The Grinch, and um, he made a little Western movie that was actually very cool and no one saw that I worked on that I liked a lot. Um, can't remember the name of it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Missing, maybe? Um, anyway, yeah, so that was like an interesting experience, but again, it wasn't really getting me any closer to what I wanted to be doing, and I was still sort of holed up in my apartment. Um, isolating myself from the outside world for the most part until I started going to comedy shows, which I kind of stumbled into in 2002. And that's when I started, started to get to know, you know, through being at these shows and then also, uh, you know, starting this message board where I would write about comedy and comedians started reading my, um, what I was writing about. Then that sort of became this entry point for getting into the whole world of LA comedy. Did you try stand up at one point? I think I heard you mention on Never Not Funny once a long I, time ago. I did. Yeah, it was it was years into all that. I was like, um, it was 2004. I remember because I was turning 30, and I was like, you know, before I turned 30, I, I, I'd been at that point. I'd been writing about stand up on the website for on thespecialthing.com for a couple of years, and I felt like. Uh, even though I don't think anyone ever specifically said this to me, uh, but I, I did, I would have said this to someone else. If, if I had seen someone else doing what I was doing, I would have said, who are you to, to write about comedy without ever doing it or without ever knowing, you know, what it feels like to be up there. So I started doing open mics and I did it for like very, pretty sporadically for about six months and didn't really get anything out of it. Like there was, maybe there was like, a week or two where I was like, 
I do this? Oh, because I already I already knew a bunch of comedians at that point, and but I didn't tell them I was doing this because I was embarrassed by it. But I huh. I did see that there was like a way to sort of make a little money doing that, um, and so I was like, well, maybe if, maybe if I do this for a little while, I, I, you know, not I didn't think I was gonna like suddenly overnight become like a winner, but I thought like if I do this for a while, maybe uh, some of these people I know will take me on the road, and I could I could open for them. And I could make a little money, and then I don't have to read scripts anymore, huh. um, which I was really sick of doing at that point. Um, and because I didn't see any other, I didn't really see any way to make money with um, with the website. This was before we started the record label, or yeah. before we started Never Not Funny. So yeah, I, I just sort of felt like, oh, actually, this would be kind of cool if I could make money doing this. But I just that that idea sort of vaporized within a week or two just because I was like, I'm, I don't have any, I didn't have any passion for it. Um, open mics are not fun, obviously for anybody, but the people <laughs> who endure them, I think do that because they need it. They like yeah. need to do it. They have like this burning the desire and I had zero burning desire to do it. Like yeah. I was just doing it sort of as an intellectual exercise, um, like just as, as an experience that I wanted to have. But when I got laughs, it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't care. And when I didn't get laughs, I also didn't care. Uh, <laughs> it didn't yeah. matter one way or the other. When, when so I was like, that's probably not a good sign. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I can do it. I like doing it occasionally. Like once or twice a year, I'll go to the open mic at Go Bananas here in Cincinnati and do it. But just because yeah. it's the only vehicle for those kind of jokes that I've written, then they don't really work on the podcast or people I'm going to do them for different. I just wanted to see what the reaction is live. And I think the, the effect, like you were saying, is it's the people I interview or that I've interviewed a lot, like, you know, Jimmy and other Jimmy, Jimmy Dore and Todd Glass and other people, they know, <laughs> I've mentioned in conversations that at least I've done a few open mics, so I've had a taste of it. So like you're saying, then they know you know, you know, at least a little bit of what it's like and, you know, it, it's not completely foreign yeah. to you. Yeah, so it had that effect um, as well. But yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. There's people that have that desire. They have to go out and be on the road and do it. I'm like, nah. <laughs> in fact, yeah. uh, a guy yeah, I with like, the, It's not a good I mean, now that I've done live shows around the country uh, with Jimmy doing Never Not Funny Live, just a, just a tiny little taste of, of the road that I've had from that. And I'm, I'm obviously I'm older now, so sure. it's different. But yeah, yeah, it, it's not it's not for me. Like I guess when you're, it's, I guess I basically just feel like it's a young person's game. Like there's no, True. yeah, yeah. Uh, some some people can do it later in the life, but you know I got kids and everything. Oh and yeah. It's, it's, it, I, the, the, the travel wears on me more than it used to, and I just don't. I, like, if I had gotten into it at a young age, maybe I would have just been like, well, this is what I do, and uh, yeah, I'm just used to it. Because I think Jimmy, although he doesn't like it, he's used to it. So right, like, yeah. Uh, he doesn't have to do as much anymore either. Feel for him. Yeah. And, yeah, um, right, that's, that's true, too. Well, you know, the t-shirt company I mixed up in, and last time I talked to you, I was just kind of working for them on the side, but I work for them full time. And of course, it's Josh Need and his partner, Darren Oberholzer. And Darren used to be a comic. He was at the feature level, but he decided, I don't want to do this. And that's so why he'd be, you know, the, when the t-shirt company took off, it was great for him. So he mm -hmm. focuses on that. Josh still tours, still headlines, but half of Josh's time is taken up running the business as well. So he, has, he gets to be home a lot. Yeah. And uh, things have really worked out for both of those guys uh, in, in that sense, I guess. So, that's cool. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know you were working for them. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we get our Douglas movie shirts from those guys. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, uh, we're trying to get more uh, people. But every time I go to someone's site, they already have somebody doing their T-shirts. So, But uh, I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, we're, we're, do, we're doing Dog Loves Movies and a bunch of other ones. Over at Fluffy Crate, everybody. Uh, go to Fluffy Crate and get your shirts. Um, so yeah. how does the, the, the podcast come about? You're doing the message board, and then do you start the record label? or And what's the, kind of the timeline of those things coming together? Um, this, you know, the record label and, and Never Not Funny sort of happened around the same time. Okay. Uh, but I guess Ryan and I, my partner Ryan McManaman, who I started the record label with, um, we started talking about that in like maybe 2005 and, um, and it took a while to, you know, maybe a year from when we started talking to like getting it really off the ground and, and putting something out. But, um, yeah, that, that just happened because Ryan was a guy who I would see at the comedy death for every week, um, which is what became comedy bang bang. Yep. And then turn into a podcast and a show and all that stuff, just for anyone who doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we were just fans and, and he, he was also on the message board and he, he came from like the punk scene and he kind of wanted to start a record label, but he didn't want uh. to do a punk label because he felt like that was, there was plenty of that out there. And, yeah. um, so he approached me and said, do you have any interest in starting a, a comedy record label? And I, I had been, interviewing comics and sort of noodling around with recording things, I guess, in different ways. Um, this is before I'd ever done a podcast, but I think I was sort of nibbling around the edges of the idea of, because I had been transcribing all the interviews I was doing with comedians, and that was very time uh, labor-intensive. And, and so I, so I was just trying to figure out, like, was there a way I can record these in a way that I can just put the audio up? And so I didn't, like... I started figuring, I started playing with audio recording in general and I was like, yeah, like I, I was sort of thinking that too because like, you know, it, we knew all these comics in LA who we thought were great and didn't really have a platform beyond the stuff. Maybe they would get hired on a TV show or something. Um, but you know, as, as stand-ups, they weren't really, some of them were touring, but it was kind of like, your stuff should be heard by more than, you know, 80 people in a club on a Tuesday night. Like this should be out there for the world to hear. And this, the most obvious way to do that would be to record them and put them out. And so we were like, we could figure out how to do this. And it was pretty straightforward and simple to like record and get CDs made and all that stuff. So we, yeah, we started doing that in, in 2005. The first album came out in 2006. Oh wait, no, maybe, maybe the first one came out in 2007. We recorded in 2006. Anyway. Uh, but then also because I was getting all this recording equipment together, I started doing the AST radio podcast, which was just interviews with comedians. And then that led to me interviewing Jimmy at his dining room table for that podcast. And it also led me to suggest to him that we turn his live talk show, Running a Trap, into uh, a podcast, which we recorded one at the UCB uh, and we listened to it and he was like, yeah, I don't really love this. Like this isn't, uh, this is, I don't think this is what we should be doing as a podcast, but why don't we do what we did for ASU video, which is just sit at my dining room table and talk. And then that could be the podcast. And so we tried that and that became never not funny. Um, that was in August, I mean, I'm sorry, April of 2006. And, um, yeah, so I guess technically that was before the record label, had before we had recorded our first album, we recorded our first two albums in the fall of 06 and put them out. And uh, Jen Kirkman's album came out in 
early 2007. So yeah, it was like all kind of happening at the same time. It was it was a phase of my life where I was just throwing a lot of stuff against the wall yeah. to see what would stick because I was just like desperate to find some other career or something else to do with my life rather than just reading scripts because it just felt like it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Well, um, so yeah, yeah, I was just, I, I, there was probably, there's probably like five other things that I'm forgetting that I was also <laughs> messing around with at the same time that yeah. never went anywhere. But two big things stuck, the, the label and the podcast, which yeah. subsequently led to you being involved yeah. in more podcasts. Yep. Yeah. 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 The Douglas movie started, you know, I, I got involved with Doug thing because he, we just knew each other. Um, he actually started that with a, a short-lived podcast network. Um, was it called Handheld? It was something that never not funny was involved in it too. Um, for a second, like we started independently and then these guys, these radio guys came around and were like, we're starting a podcast network and nobody knew what that was or what it meant. Um, and we were, we sort of joined because it was like, yeah, why not? If you guys can somehow make us money, then we're happy to do it. And they, they actually launched Douglas movies in the fall of 2006. And I think what happened was they didn't have any way to record it. I think the first one was like videotaped and they just took the audio from the video camera and made that the podcast. Oh, and then the second episode, they were like, we need to hire someone to record this. And they were like, Matt, you know how to do that. You do never have funny. Can you record this? And so I got kind of roped into just recording that. And then that turned into when AST, like I kind of, I kind of roped Ryan into it. And then it sort of became an AST Records production. And, um, it's been uh, crazy. I mean, that's, again, that's another show that's been now been running for almost 12 years. Yeah. Uh, although there was a little hiatus, I think, in between. Like, after it did, they did, like, we dug it, like, one season that stopped and started again. But, yeah, so Ryan and I spent some of our days working on that. And, uh, when you know, when we're not working. And then we do the same with Greg Proops. We help him. Oh, yeah. With his podcast. Uh, yeah, um, Smartest Man in the World. So that one it was another case of just, Greg wanted to get into podcasting. I think it was 2010, and um, he knew us from AFT. I think we did an album with him first, maybe. Um, I think that's I think that's how it went down. We did like um, we did a record with him, and he was like, "I want to do a podcast." And so, yeah, we just started recording him doing talking, uh, doing monologues at Bart uh, Lubitsch in Hollywood, and. Uh, so yeah, but, and then we at, at, at a certain point we we're like we can't do too many more because it, it becomes kind of labor intensive. Right, exactly. Sort of doing all of that behind the scenes stuff for for guys like that, and like a lot of my time is taken up with Never Not Funny because it's like a full. It's like Never Not Funny is its own full time job and business, and like yeah, exactly. Jimmy and I run it together, and so that that sort of ends up taking up most of my days, and uh, Ryan is focusing more more on the record label at this point than I am. Cool. But yeah, that, that, that was a very, that time of, I mean, I wasn't, it was before I had kids and uh, oh, I was yeah. in my 30s. And I think once I turned 30, I was like, I got to make something of myself somehow. Like, <laughs> I, I, I can't keep goofing around here. So um, <laughs> I was just trying to do anything I could to, uh, to make it happen. Yeah, well, glad it all worked out because, uh, you know, serendipitously, it kind of it led me to where I am today. I would say you, you guys and David Feldman was the other guy. That uh, really got me into oh, podcasting yeah. and showed me that I can. Feldman made me download Skype and gave me a couple pointers when I interviewed him when he was still touring. And then right around the same time, I interviewed Jimmy. And my one of my first episodes was Jimmy, and I was just kind of monkeying around and I wasn't really taking it seriously. I thought I'll do these, you know, I'll try to do it once a week. Well, I, you know, Podbean is my hosting site, 
even though they kind of suck <clears> sometimes, <throat> but they're okay. And uh, anyway, they emailed <laughs> me and said, hey, this episode is getting too much traffic. You're going to have to start paying us. And that was the episode Jimmy was on. <laughs> I thought, well, I guess I, get, I better start doing this once a week. And I did, and it, it just took off from there. And uh, that's really what led to my job at uh, Shirts as well, because I do the Cincy Shirts podcast uh, and the blogs and everything. Awesome. So Yeah, so it's it's kind of uh, came around full circle. And glad things turned out great for you, too. And uh, folks will finally get a chance yeah. to see you in Minneapolis. And hopefully we can uh, get – has there ever been a discussion of a date at Cincinnati for Go Bananas? I'm surprised we haven't had one yet. Um, I don't know if we've talked about that. I think, you know, we go to Bloomington, which is, I know, not close, but it's semi-close. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like we, whenever we do Bloomington, a few people show up who are from Cincinnati or, you know, from okay. surrounding areas. And uh, But, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't think of – I can't remember if we've ever – specifically discuss that there's like a ton of places that we've been meaning to go okay. that we haven't you know we haven't made it like boston because like oh yeah yeah you know, I, I'm, I'm from that area and right. i just feel like we need to do boston someday um and all my family is like why won't you come to this <laughs> to <laughs> the show here and then there's just places that we haven't been in years like denver um that we really oh, yeah. are overdue to go back to but yeah we've i mean we're we're, we're trying to do more of the live stuff just because you know, it's it's nice to meet fans and, um, you know, it just gives people a different, you know, I, I, it's crazy. You, you probably experienced it too from doing a podcast. It's like when you meet people who listen to you for years, they have this weird, like they know you very well and they feel like, uh, just like, hey, you're my friend. I've heard you talk about your life for however many yeah, years. Yeah, true. Yeah. So, uh, which is, which is, you know, on some level maybe slightly creepy, but it, on another level, it's actually very cool. And like, it's it's nice to meet those people face to face rather than just interacting with them on Twitter or something. But yeah. uh, I, I like meeting them and and uh, getting to talk to them a little bit after the shows. And um, and it's always fun. Like the the fans are super supportive and. Those, those shows are always great because it's like when you're in a room full of people who know the show, it's like you can, like we just did two shows in Chicago last weekend and it's great because you can make an inside joke and everybody right. gets it. And yep. it's like a nice warm feeling. So like, uh, like that, uh, when we were talking about me trying to, you know, doing open mics, it's like it's the polar opposite experience where like when you're doing an open mic, nobody cares. Like nobody in the room is even listening necessarily. Like they have no interest. In it. They're just waiting yeah. for, for their turn to get up. But uh, when you're in a room full of people who already know you, like you have so much leeway to just like make a joke that like wouldn't make sense in any other context, but they're willing to go with you because they're they already they've sort of they've come this far. Like they've, they've listened to the show, they've they've come out to the club, and so uh, you, you have uh, this great like security net underneath you um, that you know is you know you can take risks that you might not take otherwise. But it's, it's really fun. Yeah, cool, man. Well, appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, I'll let you get back to work. Yeah. I gotta get back to work. And, uh, yeah, fingers crossed for Cincinnati and have fun up in Minneapolis. And, uh, and, yeah, and continue success with Never Not Funny. I know you guys don't like it, but I tell Jimmy all the time, I love it. It's a great name. I hate the name of my show, but I love the, <laughs> I love the name of your guys' show. So, uh, I love it. I love Never Not Funny also. Yeah. I, I, like, no matter what it was, Whatever we named it, Jimmy was going to find a way to eventually yeah. hate it and complain about it because <laughs> yep. that's just his nature. That is. Well, okay, I think well, it's a good name. I don't mind people. Like, we, of course, we get the occasional, like, hey, more like always not funny, yeah, but like, yeah. whatever. I just, like, that people are going to find a way to say really lame insults if they want to. So, okay. like, All right, um, man. Well, uh, say, uh, I, I think that it works. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Well, say hi to Jimmy for me, and um, I, he, I will. He and he got out uh, from under this one this time because I usually interview him once a year, and then I recycle the interview for the other city <laughs> for Minneapolis yeah. or Cincinnati. So uh, he got off the hook this time, and uh, yeah, say hi and uh, and say and say hi to Garen for me as well because I write for Garen on um, Pop Culture Beast too. So um, oh cool yeah, yeah I'll, great. I'll tell well, thanks, Matt. All right, uh, talk to you later. Good to talk to you, man. All right, bye. All right, bye. Thanks again to Matt Belknap for being on the show. The Never Not Funny live event, the next one coming up here, is going to be at the Acme Comedy Company there in Minneapolis. It's at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, June 3rd. Jimmy is not there the rest of the week. A gentleman named Chris Garcia is headlining that week and then followed by Dean Edwards. Uh, starting on Tuesday, June 5th. They have an open mic there on June 4th, don't you know? So, uh, yeah, so I guess we're just flying into Minneapolis doing Never Not Funny and jetting back out again. So, uh, and again, hopefully we can get them down here in Cincinnati. And uh, I guess just email the show if, you, you know, if you're a Never Not Funny fan and you want to see the live show and uh, tell them. I'm sure they're looking for other places to go because they seem to be having a lot of fun with that. So that brings us to the song of the week. Song of the week is from a band we've heard from before. It is AJR. They are uh, a couple of brothers from... I don't know where AJR are from, actually. I want to say they are from Nashville, maybe? Let's leave what Wikipedia tells us. Uh, AGR are indie pop group composed of minimalist brothers Adam, Jack, and Ryan. I knew that. Uh, the band is a DIY pop group. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, they're from New York City, it looks like. All right, so anyway, a friend of mine who lives in Los Angeles, uh, my friend Patty, turned me on to these guys uh, with their last single, Sober Up, which uh, she was, you know, really behind. Even though she's not, she was in the music business. She's not anymore. She was just as a fan. She was really behind it and thought this is going to be a big hit. And it was number one on the alternative chart on Billboard. Uh, Sober up a song AJR does with Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. And uh, it was, uh, I guess, River Cuomo's first number one on the modern rock chart without Weezer. Uh, this time with AJR, of course, and it was a great tune, and people really recognized it. I played a trivia one night, and people were like, oh, this is a great tune. So I guess a lot of the alternative stations around the country played Sober Up. It did not crack the Hot 100, unfortunately. Anyway, they have a new single out, which is not from their latest album. It's called Burn Down the House, and uh, it is so new that the title on my iTunes has a couple notes on it. It says Final EQ EQ Master, I think is what it's called. Yeah, Master is what it's called. So that's how new the track is. They didn't even have time to like properly uh, tag the MP3. So anyway, Burn Down the House is the name of the tune. It's a little more, um, I don't know, electronic-y, techno-y, dancey maybe a little bit than uh, the previous singles. And uh, it's really cool. I like it a lot. Um, a little bit of a departure, but one of those things, in another case where it's like a departure, yet it still sounds like, if you're familiar with them already, it still sounds like the band. So, here's AJR, Burn Down the House. That's our song of the week on PS Tape Recorder. So long, and thanks for listening. Used to keep it cool, used to be a fool, all about the bouncing master. Watch it on the news, what you gonna do? I could hit refresh and forget. Used to keep it cool. I keep it light, stay out of the fight No one's gonna listen to me If I write a song, preaching what is wrong Will they let me sing on TV? Should I keep it light? Is that right? Way up, way up we go
Used to let it go, walk into the show Gawking at the tricks of your sleeve Too good to be truthful, I'm in a room Full of entertainers and thieves Used to let it go, 